We're going to be reading from Jonah 1, 17 through 2, 10, and Matthew 12, 38 through 42. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose, bar, whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone, on this fine June the 17th. This is our fourth week in the Rejected Grace series, and I know we haven't all been here for the last four weeks, so I'll tell you a little bit about what we've been talking about. We've been studying the book of Jonah, which is a story that is very familiar to many people, especially those outside the church. Well, at least it's familiar in one particular part, right? And I think we've said this every week, but we all kind of know, right, how it goes, the story of Jonah and the, the whale or the great fish. And I actually, I brought a friend with me. Well, you're all my friends, but I brought a special friend. This is actually a hat, but uh, I'm not going to wear it because my head is gigantic. And uh, it kind of pulls it out of shape, and so then it just winds up looking like some kind of blob. So anyway... Here's our friendly whale. I'm just going to set him right there. We'll, we'll come back to him in a minute. We get to the famous part of the story, right, which is really just like two verses. <laughs> the famous part of the story here where the whale, or more properly, the great fish, swallows Jonah as he is sinking to the depths of the sea. And it's a striking image, and we have an example up there, in part because it refer reverses our expectations. It ought to be the man catching the fish, not the other way around. Jonah chapter 117 through chapter 210 is a reminder that in this story, everything is backwards and upside down. The Hebrew prophet is the one who runs from God. 
the pagan sailors are the ones who offer sacrifices to God. It's the Ninevite cows and the people, but they make the point twice to tell us that even the cows repented. The book of Jonah is telling us that the things of God look very strange in this crooked world. God's grace is not actually confusing or scandalous. It just seems that way to us because it's our expectations and traditions that are out of whack. So in our passage, and it's not very complicated, right? It's pretty straightforward. Jonah, earlier on in Jonah chapter 1, they figure out that Jonah is the reason that there's this terrible storm on board the ship. Well, not just on the ship, but on the sea. And so Jonah has them throw him overboard. He gets thrown overboard into the ocean, and then he is swallowed or, or eaten kind of by a great sea creature. He realizes that God has saved him. I don't know how one would come to that conclusion when you're sitting in the stomach of a giant animal, but Jonah realizes what's happening, and he has the presence of mind to offer a prayer of thanksgiving, praise, and kind of sort of repentance. And after three days, the fish vomits Jonah back onto dry land, and the story continues, and we'll get to that uh, next week. But today we're focusing on his journey with the fish and his prayer inside the fish. And this story is not simply about a time that God did something neat with a whale, right? Obviously that happened, but there's so much more to the book of Jonah than, oh, and then a whale showed up and ate him. This is about God's grace given to us despite our rejection of him and our hypocrisy. God's grace given sometimes through the very things that we fear most. And since most of our passage in Jonah 2 is a prayer, I thought it would be appropriate to to try and apply it to our lives through that lens of prayer. Well, how can Jonah 2 enrich and deepen our practice of prayer? Hopefully by the end we will have come to some answers to that. But in the meantime, I want to offer you our single-sentence sermon summary for this morning. So if you're our note-takers, you can write this down. In Jesus, even the worst situations can become places of prayer. In Jesus, even the worst situations can become places of prayer. As we all know, prayer is often difficult. There's a host of obstacles that stand between us and and praying regularly and praying uh, heartfeltly, praying, you know, the way that we want to. But Jonah, unexpectedly, can offer us some guidance here and some help. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says that Jonah prayed from inside the fish. And already, with just that, just that verse, that simple observation, we can learn two incredibly important facts about prayer that we all need to be reminded of from time to time. The first thing we learn about prayer is that God is accessible from anywhere. Now, Jonah is a, is a Jew, he's a Hebrew, right? And we see that he, as when Clayton read the passage, Jonah mentions the temple twice. Now, the temple was this big, beautiful building, not anywhere near Jonah. It was in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, hundreds of miles away, where they performed the sacrifices and the rituals. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was, and it marked the epicenter, so to speak, of God's holy presence on earth. So there is something special about the temple, and Jonah acknowledges that. But he also understands that while God is specially present there, he's with Jonah and can hear Jonah in the belly of this creature many fathoms beneath the surface of the sea. So that's the first thing, that God is accessible from anywhere. 
And the second thing that we learn about prayer is this, that prayer is possible literally in the, wor- the middle of the worst situations that we can imagine. I thought about it. I can't come up with something much worse than getting eaten by a sea animal. Like, that's, that's just about as bad as it can possibly get. I've been in the ocean. I've been in the ocean with sharks. I was in a cage. But it's, it's still terrifying. It's still terrifying to be that close to an animal in a place where you can't run away from it. But Jonah did it, leaving us an example that no matter how tight the spot, and I know like in, when I was a kid or in paintings, they paint this stomach of this animal as like this big cave. It wasn't, right? He's all closed up. I mean, we've all seen animal organs, right? He's, he's you know, stuck in this sack. No matter how tight the spot, prayer is possible. In Jesus, even the worst situations can become places of prayer. And I want to take a few moments to dig into why, in Jonah's ancient cultural setting, being in the belly of this fish would have been Jonah's worst nightmare. And you could rightly ask, well, what do you mean, Ben? There's no need to explain why being swallowed by a sea monster would be a man's worst nightmare. And you're not wrong. But I think there's there's a cultural context here that I found very enlightening and very helpful and useful as I was studying this, and and I hope that you will as well. And the first thing to know is that the ancient Hebrews, ancient Israelites, were very afraid of the oceans. In our current age of giant ships and weather forecast satellites, the widespread ability to swim, which is fairly recent in human history, we don't view the oceans with deep suspicion and fear. We might think about certain aspects of it, like sharks or hurricanes or things like that, but usually not the oceans themselves. When we think about what's the embodiment of our worst nightmare, I think most of us don't go, oh, well, it's the ocean. <laughs> the ancient, to the ancient Hebrew mind, the great oceans represented chaos, destruction, and death. The ancient Hebrews were not a seafaring people. I believe, and we can fact check me, but I think this is, one of, this is the only time or one of the only times we see an Israelite in a boat until Jesus and the apostles on the Sea of Galilee. They were not seafaring people. They could not swim. And as you think about the Old Testament, you see this popping up all over the place. Genesis chapter 1 looks back to a point before life and land and light to an early state of the world that was just a massive ocean, deep and dark. And the Spirit of God hovered over these waters, it says in Genesis 1, and creation could only proceed once they had been split and separated. In Genesis 6, when the Lord is grieved by the continual evil of the human heart, he unleashes the oceans, the waters of the flood, to wipe creation clean to start over again. The sea also represented the scramble for power that characterized the Gentile empires, Egypt and Syria and Babylon and Rome and so on. Both Daniel, the prophet Daniel, and the apostle John have visionary experiences where monsters representing the Gentile empires come out of the sea to oppress God's people. So the sea is death. The sea is chaos. The sea harbors monsters. The sea destroys. So the ancient Israelites who would have heard this story, either read or told for the first time, would have had a very specific reaction to Jonah getting on a boat and braving the open ocean to avoid God. Jonah would rather surrender to the mercy or the mercilessness of the violent and destructive sea 
than to the grace of his covenant God. It has, there's more to it than just he went in the absolute opposite direction. That is part of it, but I think with this context, we see that Jonah was literally willing to throw himself into a nightmare to get away from what God was asking him to do. The fact that there was a monster waiting before him, uh, or be, waiting for him beneath the water would only confirm the ancient Israelite suspicions about how terrible the ocean is. That's why you don't go swimming. What species exactly this great fish was, I don't think really concerns us, but the fact that it was a great sea creature carried with it specific cultural ideas. Sort of like this creature. What is that? It's Godzilla. What does Godzilla do? <laughs> Thank you for the sound effect. But yeah, he wrecks things, right? The one thing that that monster will not do is sit down to tea with the townsfolk and talk about, you know, golf. <laughs> He's there to destroy the city. And I imagine some of us have probably never seen a Godzilla movie, but you know who that is, and you know who he, what he does. So it's the same thing with our friend, the whale. Now, we picture it like my hat. Friendly, shiny, soft, you know, hello, Jonah, I'm here to save you. But the ancient Israelites would have imagined it something a lot closer to Godzilla, and I think that's very important for us to understand. The book of Job talks about Leviathan, a gigantic sea monster that embodies all that the people of God are afraid of. Now, Jonah's fish is not Leviathan, but I think that it's a cousin. It's a conceptual cousin to, the, to, to what Leviathan was. And here's the point to all this, and I think one of the core revelations of good news in Jonah. The prophet is dropped into the water. Already, the ancient Hebrew audience is terrified. He's in the water. But then, when Jonah's watery doom seems complete, who should appear but a gigantic sea monster. If you didn't already know how the story goes, what would you expect to happen next? Yeah, a scene from Jaws or something like that, right? But that's not what happens. Because God's grace looks topsy-turvy in our broken and tipped-over world. Chapter 1, verse 17 says, The Lord provided or appointed that monster to come get Jonah. We see the good news that at the word of God, this sea monster of fear and destruction becomes a vehicle of deliverance and rescue for Jonah. His very worst nightmare becomes his deliverance by the word of the Lord. Now remember, this fish is a result of Jonah's disobedience. If he had just gone to Nineveh, the book would be over by now. It's a result of his disobedience, but it is also an avenue for God's grace to reach him. What a picture of suffering and trials in the Christian life. When I was in sixth grade, and I went to Peoria Christian my whole life, I was never in public school, but when I was in sixth grade, or before I entered sixth grade, my father uh, convinced me to play junior high football with the Panthers. He was a football player in high school, and I imagine... Um, you know, he was trying to get me interested in something that when we already shared many interests, but I think he was, I, well, I guess we'd have to ask him. I have no idea why he thought quiet, thoughtful, weird Ben was fit to play football, but we were going to try it. And I remember distinctly the prospect of having to spend time running around with kids that I didn't know, right? That alone was scary. 
but especially the fact that they were public school boys <laughs> was horrifying. They were going to eat me alive. Now imagine my utter dread when sitting in Russell Cycling, going through the registration process, dad is kind of handling the, the money and everything, and I'm sitting there reading the, the health uh, liability disclaimer, because that's what I was like in sixth grade. And I saw right there at the bottom in fine print that this activity that I was embarking upon could potentially result in spinal damage, dismemberment, or other severe physical injury. I was truly terrified. But I did it anyway. I went through with it, really and truly, because my father told me that it was going to be all right. And it was. It wound up not being that bad. We lost every single game we played, but we didn't lose any limbs. I call that a net win. For us, church, if we would but trust the Father's promises to us, he will see us through even our worst nightmares and transform them into vehicles of his grace. In Matthew chapter 12, the religious leaders press Jesus for a sign, a miracle. They want him to prove that he is who he says he is, and we don't have time to get into the dynamics of that passage in Matthew, but Jesus answers that the only sign he's going to give them is the sign of Jonah. And Jesus explains what this is in Matthew 12, verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the sea. Three in the heart of the, heart of the earth. The son of Jonah, or the sign of Jonah, is Jesus' resurrection from the grave. Jesus, just like Jonah, has been swallowed up by death. And like Jonah, he's come out. But unlike Jonah, Jesus has overthrown death. So that as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, death has been swallowed up in life. The worst that any of us can imagine has already happened to Jesus. He has died under the wrath of God. He has faced public humiliation and shame. He has undergone immense and excruciating physical torment. His, his body has already given out on him. His friends have abandoned him. But Jesus blazed a trail out through the far side of that, that he can lead and will lead each one of us down that same path. We will be resurrected from death. That is our future hope and one of our defining characteristics as Christians that we know, we may not always believe it, but we know that part of the bedrock of our faith is that death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. But the good news is real now as well. Our suffering, while we're still here, our suffering can be redeemed, can become a vehicle of his grace. Jesus has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 that all of God's promises to us are yes in Christ Jesus. And part of what that means is that for the Christian, no matter what you're going through, God is with you. He is faithful to you. Now, that doesn't mean it won't be painful or hard or awkward or cause hurt. And if we want evidence of that, we can look right at the life of Jesus. Following Jesus doesn't lead us into less suffering in our earthly life. But he does give us strength to endure, and not just to survive, but grace to be transformed into something greater and more good and more kind than we were before 
we entered into that experience. And knowing that Jesus has already gone through the very worst gives us confidence and peace. And I think we see this in Jonah too. I think that Jonah had a real opportunity to be changed by his journey in the whale's belly. Now that he has literally been eaten by a monster, preaching to the Ninevites ought to be a piece of cake. But with Jonah and ourselves, we know that things are rarely that straightforward. Well, I think Jonah's prayer is genuine. I don't think he was uh, lying or putting on an act. I think his thanksgiving is real, and we can learn, as we did earlier, we can learn good things about prayer from it. I think there are clues here that there's more to this than just here's a good example of, of how to pray. Back when the boat was sinking, in chapter 1, the sailors asked Jonah to pray that they would be saved. Jonah does not do that. But as soon as Jonah's in the water, as he says in chapter uh, 2, verse 1, he prays and he cries out to God to save his skin. He is contrite. The contrition is real. But I don't know if Jonah's heart is really changing. I think the key here is in verses 8, verses eight and 9, and really verse 8, Jonah says that idol worshipers forsake their hope of steadfast love. In the NIV, it says they forsake the grace that could be theirs. And the word that is being translated, grace or steadfast love, is the Hebrew word chesed, which I know we've heard about in different sermons here in the past. It's a covenant word. Chesed means God's faithful, committed kindness and love towards his people. Jonah is saying that idolaters reject the covenant grace. What's interesting to me is that Jonah uses that word again in chapter 4, verse 2, when he accuses God of having too much of it. Are you sure it's the idol worshipers who are rejecting God's grace, Jonah? Part of what it meant to be in covenant with God for the Israelites was to be a blessing and witness to the nations. That is exactly what Jonah has been trying to get away from, what he's been trying to reject. Jonah's refusal of God's calling amounts to forfeiting his grace, rejecting it. That's why we called the series what we called it. Jonah is the idol worshiper, not the sailors. Even the sea monster immediately and perfectly obeys the word of God, while Jonah the prophet does not. So who's the real monster in the story? We are given Jonah's extreme example in order to hold it up to our own lives and see how it compares. Jonah's prayer is genuine and it's selfish at the same time. He is a prophet and a whiny child at the same time. He, his life, like ours, is complicated. It's broken, often due to forces outside our control, but also because of our own sinful choices. God does not desire us to read this passage and come away, this passage in particular, or the book of Jonah, and come away feeling bad about ourselves. He wants us to recognize our own fractured hearts in Jonah's. To see cowardice, gratitude, disobedience, trust, all mixed together. And then to see how at his command, even our worst nightmares can be vehicles of his powerful, transforming grace. Nobody wants to suffer, but the followers of Jesus must accept suffering. That's part of what it means to follow him and to trust God in the midst of it. Imagine for a moment that you are Jonah, just thrown overboard into the stormy sea. You're sinking into the dark depths, and you realize that you're sharing the water with a creature much larger than you, and who's eyeing you in a very specific way. It's easy to imagine Jonah trying to swim away, or trying to grab a hold of the whale's lips, 
or trying to kick at it or otherwise trying to avoid getting swallowed by this creature. Now, whether he did or not, we'll never know. But we do know that in order for this sea monster to change into a vehicle of deliverance, Jonah had to go right to the stomach, right to the center of his very worst nightmare. And then he had to stay there. He had to wait there until God said that it was time for him to walk free again. The good news is that Jesus has already suffered the worst on our behalf and has risen victorious over evil in all of its forms. He is with us in the middle of the trial, the pain, the stress, and the strife. In Jesus, even the worst situations can become places of prayer. I urge you, brothers and sisters, not to reject the faithful grace of God in the strange and frightening forms that he may be giving it to you. My encouragement for our church family this week, whether you feel like you're really going through something right now or not, is to set aside a little while at the beginning or at the end of the day, maybe whenever you pray normally, and to practice praying in the belly of the monster. If it's profitable for you, I would suggest that you take a piece of paper and you just make a list. You list out everything that has you worried, angry, and afraid. And then you go back over that list, and for each one of those items, you hold them in in your mind, and you pray, Lord Jesus, show me where your grace is in this. Show me where your grace is in this. I think we can be confident that he will answer those prayers. I'll close with a few lines from a poem written by a long-dead Puritan. Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live. To love and serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. He that unto God's kingdom comes must enter by this door. Then I shall end my sad complaints and weary sinful days and join with the triumphant saints that sing my Savior's praise. My knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But tis enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. Amen.